The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Health IQ, a company that helps you save money for understanding your health. And they do this by assessing your actual knowledge, your health IQ, which means asking real questions, tough ones with a time limit. They really want to know what you know. My co-producer, Robbie Carver, races bikes fairly seriously, so he knows a lot about his health. But I was curious, how much does he know about his health while racing bikes? So I took some real health IQ questions and found a spot on the course where I could ask him as he went by. All right, Robbie. Which hormone promotes glycogen synthesis in the liver? Cortisol, testosterone, insulin. No. If you can do better than Robbie, Health IQ can negotiate a lower rate on life insurance for you. So the healthier you live, the more you save. To learn more and see if you qualify, visit healthiq.com slash outside. That's healthiq.com slash outside. From Outside Magazine and PRX, these are Dispatches. Stories from our writers in the field. As journalists and storytellers, covering climate change presents a lot of really unique challenges. First, the story is big, like big as the whole planet. Second, it moves really, really slowly, so the basic information is almost always the same. CO2 heats the atmosphere, which melts the ice caps and gives weather more destructive power. Third, it doesn't often play by the usual rules of storytelling. There's no obvious villain or hero. Last year, The Guardian newspaper in the UK did a 12-part podcast simply titled The Biggest Story in the World, about the challenges it faced when it began to really focus on climate change as a story. It's clearly the most important story that we could be thinking about, and yet you scan the daily newspapers and it's almost absent. Over the weekend, I was talking with a reporter who covers climate science almost exclusively, and he said he's seeing editors getting tired of stories about the actual science of global warming. Probably because you, readers and listeners, are also a little bit tired of it. Well, today on the Outside Podcast, we have an actual climate science story. But it's not so much about new discoveries into the mechanism of global warming, as it is about a new way that we might understand global warming. To do that, we're launching an entirely new segment of the podcast, called Dispatches. Dispatches are basically a way to take great stuff from Outside Magazine and Outside Online and give it to you here. It's stuff we think is cool, but it's not a survival story or an interview. And usually, it's going to be stuff that benefits from having some sort of audio component. It's a catch-all term, and today it caught Brad Rassler. And Brad, you are recording as well. Yes. Awesome. A recent editorial fellow at the magazine who started poking around at a story about Nick Save, an environmental neuroscientist at Stanford, who studies how people make decisions about the environment. So Nick is using fMRI to uh, study the brains of people who are being given various stimuli, both iconic landscapes, gorgeous photographs, and also landscapes that have been ravaged by things like pit mining and, and whatnot. And then he asks his subjects whether they'd be inclined to make a donation. And what he's found from people having their brain scanned as he does this is that the rational brain is a lot less generous than the emotional brain. Here's Nick. So a lot of what we found uh, lines up with reaching people emotionally and not throwing a lot of facts and figures um, at them. It seems like the more that we use kind of the rational reflective part of our brain, 
that does cost-benefit analysis and determines what things are worth to us, uh, the more we make the selfish choice that's not in the interests of the environment. Basically, he found that you could give someone science all day, but it wouldn't really change the likelihood of their caring about the environmental impact of their choices. It'd make someone feel it. And so here's that same problem. Science isn't very good at making people feel things. In fact, there are a lot of things built into the scientific process to keep emotions out of it. So Nick got to thinking, how else could he translate scientific data into the emotional sphere? And so he audited a course at, uh, at Stanford's Karma, which is the Center for Com- Computer Research and, what is it, something acoustics. And he connected with Professor Chris Chafe, the director of the Center for Computer Research and something acoustics. And Chafe introduced him to the concept of data sonification, which at its most basic level is the process of converting information to sound whether that's a hospital monitor beeping along with a patient's heart, or an alarm helping us keep track of time. But what Chafe was illustrating was different. He was showing how complex, difficult-to-understand data sets could tell a very human story when put to sound. Like a seizure, which you're listening to right now, and which makes no sense visually. But to the ear, you can kind of hear patterns. You could potentially sonify any data set. So Nick started asking researchers at Stanford if they had anything he could play around with. And that brought him to Dr. Lauren Oakes, an ecologist who had spent the summers of her graduate work deep in the Alaskan wilderness. I worked in, on Chichikov Island in, in the West, West Chichikov Yukobi wilderness, and then also in Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve, just, just north of, of Chichikov Island in southeast Alaska. Lauren's research centered on the decline of a tree native to the Alaskan coast the yellow cedar. And it's a beautiful species for sure. It stands out in the forest. It has these, you know, sweeping branches. The structure of it's really different. It grows incredibly slowly. So when you see, you know, the wood of it, the rings are really tight. The wood's beautiful. It has a distinct smell. You know, when you walk into a forest that has a yellow cedar tree in it, it smells different. It feels different. But because of rising global temperatures, the yellow cedar is freezing to death. Which seems totally counterintuitive in a warming world, right? But what's happening in the Pacific Northwest is we're seeing an increase in precipitation as rainfall and a decrease in snowpack. In the past, the snowpack acted sort of like a blanket that kept the shallow roots of the yellow cedar insulated. Now, when the extreme cold hits, the soil freezes and the yellow cedar dies. The species itself, you know, over time drops out. It doesn't regenerate well. It, it, even just the chance of finding a yellow cedar in these forests over time just, you know, steadily decreases. In the southern end of the area where I eventually worked called Slocum Arm, the trees basically looked like, you know, telephone poles. They'd been dead a long time, so a lot of decay had gone on, but they were still standing. Like an army slowly retreating before an advancing enemy, the territory of the yellow cedar is shrinking receding further and further north. And with the loss of the cedar's shade cover, mosses and ferns die out, grasses take over, the entire forest ecology changes. The data Lauren gathered focused on five tree species, the most important being the yellow cedar. Her team had split the region into 50 plots, and just like a census, gathered information about each tree, such as its height, diameter, and health. It was all science until her 30th birthday rolled around. 
something about turning 30 and, you know, being surrounded by these trees that were dying for a reason, you know, that I knew, and that could be a reason that affects my life in the future, um, kind of set me up for a, a challenging day. And I chose on that day to go to a forest that had not been affected yet, you know, one of the healthy ones. And we spent this day, you know, we kind of made an agreement, we're not going to talk about climate change today. <laughs> and, and, and even then, like, my mind was racing forward saying, well, what about, you know, what about these trees? Like, what are we going to see in the future? Every species has a threshold for climate change, she says, like a tipping point. She was simply studying the yellow cedar as it went over the edge. And on her birthday, she started thinking, what's our tipping point? Here we are with a species that has survived, you know, hundreds of years of change and it's hit a threshold. It's hit a threshold where it, it can't survive anymore in some places. You know, everyone in my generation who is increasing their awareness about climate change and the kinds of impacts that are occurring on the planet, you know, might have that question for themselves. What does our future look like? Is there a threshold for us? Lauren's dissertation, published in the journal Ecosphere, was titled Long-Term Vegetation Changes in a Temperate Forest Impacted by Climate Change. It's full of numbers and measurements, but it does not tell the story in a way that most of us can understand. Which brings us back to Nick Save, still wandering around the Center for Computer Research and something acoustics at Stanford, looking to sonify data as a way to bridge the gap between cold hard science and the cold hard cash that might help fix the problem. So when it comes to climate change and other environmental risks, we basically focus on risks that happen here now to us and for certain. And the problem with a lot of environmental risks is that they fail across all those dimensions. Lauren's data, however, told the story of a beautiful tree being decimated. It checked all the boxes that we care about. Nick just had to figure out how to access that story, which meant making sense of the raw data. All of it. Lauren gave me her data set of trees, which was, you know, a couple thousand different trees with well over a dozen dimensions on every single tree. We had 2,064 trees and actually 882 saplings as well in 48 plots. And then that data went to Nick and in his rendering process, he ended up with 45 sites for nearly 2,000 trees and also nearly 30 variables for each tree. Yeah, so what I decided was every, um, every note that we hear would be uh, an individual tree that Lauren sampled. And the way those notes are modeled are aspects of the tree. So um, the taller the tree is, the higher uh, its pitch, right? And the harder that that note is hit, um, that corresponds to how wide that tree was uh, at the base. And... Uh, that duration of how long that note's held, it's how healthy was that tree uh, and how, how well was it doing at the time. Each tree type was given its own computer-generated instrument. For the mountain hemlock, Nick chose the violin. The shore pine became the clarinet. The flute was matched to the western hemlock. And the Sitka spruce, that's actually a tree that people make stringed instruments from, so I gave that to the cello. The star of the show, Yellow Cedar, was on piano. 
Nick's next challenge was figuring out how to give the data some structure. He had all the notes, but what order to play them in. Most data sets feature some sort of change over time, but this is more of a snapshot. With Lauren's data, there wasn't that inherent uh, time dimension um, until you started thinking about it. So what her data set was, was basically um, watching the effects of climate change. Going along the Alaskan coast, uh, when you go north to south, you see more and more drastic uh, effects of, of climate change on these tree species. Think of the orchestration as a flyover. The song begins in Glacier Bay Preserve in the north, where the yellow cedar is still thriving. But then the music takes you 120 kilometers south, down Chichigoff Island to an inlet called the Slocum Arm. And as you travel, the effects of climate change become more pronounced. Each bar of the song corresponds to one plot in Lauren's study. So the more populous a plot, the more piano notes. Which means that as you progress down the coast, you can hear the yellow cedar die out. One big thing that really lets us hear climate change uh, and the impacts on the yellow cedar is that uh, we still count the dead trees towards that total population. Um, but I play those as, as drop notes. They're silences uh, within the piece. So what you might get is if she visited a place that has, um, you know, 30 trees and 28 of them are dead, we're only going to hear two quick notes that are very sporadic, you know, mixed in with, with a lot of silence. Big picture, the thing that's wonderful um, to me about data sonification is that it, it makes accessible um, the many, the myriad studies that are just invisible or hidden to us because we're not reading uh, peer-reviewed journals. You know, a, a kind of a, a diminution of the piano as we go through the piece, I think, tells the story really well. Climate change, warming planet, reduced snowpack is is taking a toll on the yellow cedar in the southern part of this uh, study range. You don't have to be a scientist to understand the, the the narrative of something that's you know in this case dying. But in total, I think it creates quite a beautiful composition. Sonification has the potential to make music out of the dry, hard data that's so ineffective at getting people to actually change habits. So if climate change defies our attempts at telling stories about it, perhaps we can write songs instead. But there's another story here too, because as you hear one tree die out, you can hear another one take its place. And this is where things get slightly problematic. Because choosing things like instrumentation for the different trees introduces bias to the data. Different instruments come with different connotations informed by subjective things like culture and musical preference. It's a completely unscientific way to present scientific data. In Nick's piece, as the piano recedes into the background, the clear, vibrant notes of the flute come forward, 
signifying that the western hemlock, migrating north, is thriving. And what story do you tell about that? In fact, there are all sorts of tiny decisions to make that inform the final experience of this data. Your choice of a minor key, was that... um... That was totally intentional to make it a little sad, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get, and that's that's what I want to get to is is this idea that it, it's funny to give an emotion to a data set, right? Is this a sad data set or is this a happy data set? Did you talk me through that that intentional decision? Yeah, I mean that that really came out of just narrative in terms of talking with Lauren about what did this data set represent, and she really um, felt like it was the story of the yellow cedars fading away. Um, and, and certainly in the scientific papers that she's written, you know, you get that, that, that strong theme. Uh, and so actually until I heard it for myself, I didn't realize there was a secondary theme of, you know, the species rising to take, to fill in the blanks and, and take the place of yellow cedar as you go further south. Um, and by the time that I had rendered it out into D minor, um, you know, I, I liked that story, and I thought that was a that was an important story. But yeah, at the same time, um, you could easily flip it and and attain a really different uh, feel, and be no no less true to the data. You could have keyed it to make the hemlock sound quite ominous, right? If if you if you framed the hemlock as an invader, that would sound very different than something that's kind of uh, flourishing in the place of something that's dying. Um, so, it, so it is a judgment call, and it is... All of these things are, are numbers, right, at the end of the day, and numbers don't have an inherent emotional quality unless you're talking about, you know, translating them into frequencies that we can hear right and then for some strange reason about being human like uh when we get those numbers and interpret them through our ears uh, we add all these emotional components in a way those artistic decisions are a lot more easy to pick apart uh, than the underlying data that they're built on top of. And as it is, people are ignoring that data and reinterpreting it and marginalizing it, right? So I don't know. It adds accessibility. It doesn't necessarily add credibility. But there might be a way for it to be useful outside of just representation. When we asked her about it, Lauren Oak said that she was excited about the potential for using data sonification to look for new trends and new correlations. Stuff she couldn't see, but might be able to hear. What came out to me when I listened to it the first time was like, wow, this is a really cool way of, for a scientist to explore or hear their data because it's so true to what I analyzed. Uh, and it also, you know, it, it also maintains the integrity of the data in the sense that a lot of times we're reporting, you know, means and standard deviations and able to run tests between those numbers and show the patterns and statistically significant changes, right? But um, the music has patterns to it and then also preserves 
every single data point. You can hear every tree. This piece was produced by Robbie Carver and me, Peter Frickwright. Thanks to Brad Rassler for telling us about it in the first place. Find his article on OutsideOnline.com. Also thanks to Nick Save, Lauren Oakes, and Chris Chafe, who is the director of the Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics at Stanford. We'll play the whole three-minute piece after the credits. We should also mention that all the music in this story was created using the data from Lauren's study, not just Nick's song. But we weren't nearly as true to the science. The Outside Podcast is produced by Outside Magazine and PRX. We'll be back in a few weeks. Thank mm-hmm. you.